the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. He doesn't know what he's talking about, people say. How dare he presume to imagine that, still less affirm with such confidence that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. If he'd been in my shoes, people say, felt my pain, been in the dark places I've had to endure in my life, he would not be quite so confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not, not so arrogant. What about that pain I felt when I lost someone I loved? They say, what about that betrayal I had to endure that broke my heart? They complain. What about the child of mine, born of my bone, who messed up his life and ended up in prison and broke my heart? They say. What about the parents that don't talk to me anymore? What about the lack of money, the pressures of need that ruins my joy? What about that day I got my redundancy and the carpet was ripped out from under my feet? They say, 
What about this illness that haunts me? This disability that threatens to make me sour and bitter? Don't these things separate me from the love of God? Create a a yawning chasm of separation between my actual circumstances and this ideal experience. What does he know about trouble and hardship and persecution and hunger and danger and poverty? Some cleric cosy in his cloister, sheltering up there in his ivory tower, pontificating about the great thing that the life of faith is, while I'm down here broken in pieces. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is ours. Why why should I believe this stuff, people say, who are living real lives? Who is he to talk? What does he know about anything, this writer? What credibility does he have that I should listen to him for a second? Wait, Wait, though. Wait, though. Who is that man over there, chained to the wall like a dog, waiting for his jailer to bring him some scraps and some brackish water, alone and friendless and doomed? Who is that man standing shivering on the beach with only the clothes he wears, the wreckage of the ship drifting out on the waves, the future bleak and seemingly hopeless? And what does that vicious sound of leather thong on skin as the little man, bent and suffering with the pain, endures the 39 lashes five times? A flogging severe enough to kill many a man. Who's that being lowered down the city walls in a basket to escape his persecutors? Who's that little man onto whose head rain stones and rocks from a, a mad crowd? Ugly, mob, filled with hatred, loathing this message he brings, wanting to silence his voice once and for all. What does he know about trouble and persecution? And hunger and hardship and poverty and danger. And in the end, the man who scratched these words waits for the sound of soldiers coming, coming for him, the might of Rome that will kill him and silence his irritating voice for good. This is the man who speaks about that unbreakable bond between his heart and God's. The certainty he feels that no matter what happens to him, and my goodness, plenty has happened to him, God will hold him, sustain him, inspire him, does hold him, does sustain him, does inspire him. These are not trite religious platitudes. This is not someone pretending that it's all going to be nice and nothing bad is going to happen. That it will not get down and dirty and dangerous and ugly. These are truths hammered out on the anvil of real life. In all its blood and sweat and pain. In all the rejection, in all the disappointments, in all the people who betrayed him and let him down, in all the pressures that crashed against his little life, 
in the storm, in the crisis, in the darkness. The love of God was never far from him, he found. So he knows what he's talking about. What he says deserves our attention. His analysis is not merely academic, theoretical, but raw and personal and real. And that is the experience of the church throughout the world, even as we worship today. 25 years of chronicling the political restrictions on religious freedom experienced by Christians worldwide. The Christian monitoring group Open Doors notes that persecution of Christians rose globally again for the third year in a row. Their findings and trends are these stark. Approximately 215 million Christians experienced high, very high, or extreme persecution in the world. North Korea remains the most dangerous place to be a Christian for 14 straight years. Islamic extremism remains the global dominant driver of persecution, responsible for initiating oppression and conflict in 35 out of the 50 countries on the list in 2017. Out there, it's happening. Christians are suffering. These are dark and difficult times. The ten nations that are the most dangerous in which to be a Christian, North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen and Eritrea. They describe persecution in the Open Doors Monitoring Group as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Christians remain one of the most persecuted religious groups in the world. Christians throughout the world continue to risk imprisonment, loss of home and assets, torture, rape, and even death as a result of their faith. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And they don't give up, those Christians, our brothers and sisters. They don't say, he has abandoned us, this is too hard. It's not true. They meet and they pray and they read their Bible and they praise this God in whom they trust and whose love sustains them in the face of those pressures that we can barely imagine. This is tried in the fire truth. Closer to home, there was a a Mrs. Grant, a lovely old lady in my last congregation, who had to deal with some pretty hard stuff. She had terrible, crippling arthritis. Her husband Jim had a stroke, was in a wheelchair for years, and then he died. And in the middle of all that, her daughter Janet, age 40, died of cancer, her beautiful only daughter. Now, if anyone had the right to feel separated from the love of God, it was Mrs. Grant. If anyone had the right to wonder, is this worth anything, this Christian life, this faith caper? She said, Mr. Twardle, if you could promise people from the pulpit that if they came to church every Sunday and served God and loved him and read their Bible, nothing bad would ever happen to them, well, the church would be full every Sunday. But she said, you know, it doesn't work like that. She had to find God in the storm. 
She had to trust him in the darkness and believe in him and hold on to him and believe that he was holding on to her. And, and nothing, nothing in all creation could separate her from his love. His love was the constant foundation of all foundations. The reality that stood above all realities. Maybe when it's easy for us, we forget. Maybe when it's comfortable, we doubt. Maybe when it's optional and not central, faith becomes a bit threadbare and a bit casual. But it seems that people who know what it's like to be strung out on the wire, to live with fear of the kinds of crushing pressures that you might imagine would break the spirit, they discover there, as they pray, as they sing, as they trust, that Paul, that suffering, beaten, and soon-to-be-killed apostle, actually knows what he's talking about. That his words have integrity and credibility and that God is near and his word is strong and there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In 555, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, 555. Five, five.